right. Happy Lord's Day, everybody. You too. You too. Happy Palm Sunday. This is, again, the beginning of, of Holy Week as we round up the uh, season of Lent, and we come into Holy Week as we begin to celebrate Resurrection Sunday next, uh, next Sunday. And Holy Week, of course, is that time when Jesus came in, uh, the week leading up to his, his uh, crucifixion, uh, his death, and his rising from the grave that we celebrate next Sunday. And Holy, again, if you remember, Holy means to be set apart. So as Christians, we set this week apart to celebrate and, and to restore our lives back to Christ, to have that, that time with Him and to focus on what He did and how that impacted and changed our lives for all, all eternity. And also as holy, we celebrate the fact that we as Christians set ourselves apart from the world and that we are different, we have a hope, we have a reason for living. Uh, the Bible says we have all reason for rejoicing. And if you read your Ten Commandments, it says that we are to set this day aside specifically for the Lord to honor Him to do what? To rest. So if anybody here is snoring, that's someone's just being biblical. That's all it is. Right, Christy? Hmm? Yeah. So we're to, we're to rest, but also if you look in Psalms 118.24, it says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Do you know how often? unceasingly always so today this Sunday and every Sunday is our R and all our day it's for rest and rejoicing so I hope everyone is resting and rejoicing this day as we celebrate and we we come to draw together in the Lord and to share in his words so uh, if you want to join with me in, in the Bible we're gonna be in Zechariah that Old Testament prophet Zechariah chapter 9 briefly then we will be in Luke New Testament 19 and then John 12. So Zechariah 9, Luke 19, and John 12. So hold your fingers in three spaces. So for the past four weeks, we have been talking about the hours leading up to Jesus' resurrection, the, the things that were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 and 53 that Isaiah predicted as the prophet of God some 700 years before Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, came on the scene. But Isaiah was not the only one to predict what would happen during this time leading up to the, the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. There's another prophet, Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet that prophesied that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, not on a great stallion like was, was expected, not a great war horse, but on a donkey, the, the colt of a donkey. So Zechariah came on the scene about 200 years after Isaiah, so he writes this 500 years before Jesus is, is here and, and became God-man, God, fully God. And he writes in Zechariah 9, verse 9, he says this. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, as we celebrate Easter, again, if you've been a Christian for many years, you've probably heard these words like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Jesus is riding in on a donkey and they lay down the palm branches. But the interesting thing about when Zechariah wrote this is, again, it's against all odds. It doesn't make sense and fit in the human logic. Again, this is 500 years before Jesus is born and does his 
earthly ministry, 500 years before that. Also, at this time, the nation of Israel was in exile from Babylon, and the walls of Jerusalem were torn down and in ruin. So there was no gate when Isaiah wrote this for Jesus to ride through. Now I want you to think about that because, or not Isaiah, Zechariah, because Zechariah boldly prophesied that the Messiah would ride through the gate of Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And as he's writing this, this prophetic scripture that God had spoken through him, if you looked around Jerusalem, there were no walls. They had been at war, they had been in exile, the walls were broken down, and there was no city gate. So if you put yourself in the people of that time and looking at this, you probably thought, like Isaiah, this man was either really on key, what didn't quite make sense, or the guy was a lunatic, right? I mean, here he is saying, the Messiah will come through the gate riding on the colt of a donkey, and they're like, there's no gate. Our walls are in ruin. We'd have to rebuild everything. So that's what's cool about that. What are the odds that that could happen? You know, my closest analogy is thinking back in the 1980s. Y'all remember the 1980s? Good years, right? So, so, so. In the 1980s, Russia, the Iron Curtain was still up, and uh, uh, President Reagan comes on and calls for the walls to come down, the Iron Curtain to come down. Who would have thought in the 1980s, or even going back to the 1970s, who would have ever thought that Russia would someday be a free trade society like the United States of America? At that time in our history, we would look at that and be like, you are nuts. They are under Russian rule. They are basically captive in their own nation. The quote symbolic iron curtain is up. The concrete wall is up. It's like, they don't know anything about free trade. And yet, what happened the next couple decades after it came down? Free trade came in. They had no clue what it was. They struggled with it for a while. And now they are a free trade nation. That's like what we have with what Zechariah is writing. The people at the time are looking going, this doesn't even make sense that this could actually happen because everything's in rubble, it's in ruin. But it did happen. The prophecy of Jesus does come true. It's recorded in history and God's people celebrate it annually. And once again, all four gospels talk about the event, which as we've said the last couple of weeks, when God repeats something, it's what? For emphasis, you should get this. All four Gospels repeat this story of what Jesus does, which again, in my mind, in the simpleness of it, it says that there is something here that God does not want us to miss. And here's my take on it, especially if you've been a Christian for decades and decades. It's easy to glean through the Gospels and read over the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the Holy Week, and Resurrection Sunday. It's easy to read that and go right through it and not let it impact you at all, right? I think what God is saying here, He goes, I've put the story in four times for you. There's something here you need to slow down and meditate on and grasp that I'm trying to share with you because it changes your life. Not just the life that we celebrate now, but our eternal life. It changes us and calls us to a higher standard, to a closeness with God spiritually. Well, it should, right? It should, as the Bible impacts our life. 
The last four weeks, we've walked through the days leading up to Jesus' resurrection. And today, we want to talk about the final week before we celebrate Resurrection Sunday next week. Because this weekend marks the beginning of Holy Week. Again, holy means what? Set apart. And what I'd like to encourage you to do as we go through this, if you're keeping notes or just keeping mental notes, is as we go forth from the day and we leave church to go out into the mission field and the world to share the gospel, to be that every day that we have our morning devotions with God, that we can wake up and say, oh yeah, I remember this is Monday. You know what? I know what Jesus did on this Monday during Holy Week. Oh, it's Wednesday. You know what? I know what Jesus did so that we can take that and have that connection and walk through Holy Week with Jesus and his apostles because we know every day what Jesus did in that time. And we can focus and celebrate of the wonder of God's will unfolding. Again, as we've always done, let's start moving forward by going backward. Sound fun? Two steps forward, three steps back, right? And we'll get there eventually. Today's Palm Sunday, and so the question is, instead of focusing on the day yet, what was Jesus doing yesterday? Tara? Crickets. Christy says crickets. I don't think he ate crickets. John might have, but I don't think Jesus did. Over the last weeks, he's been journeying south from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, teaching in villages all along the way, and training the 12 apostles as he's moving along. If you read through the gospel stories, Jesus is moving around city to city, walking quite regularly, but he's teaching the apostles and what is going on. But Jesus knows, knowing the will of God, his Father, that in just a few days, he has to be in the holy city for Passover. That's the big celebration. He is the sacrificial lamb, as we looked at a week or two ago, and he knows he has to be there. But here's the amazing thing about this week. Jesus does not waste any time. He knows he still has to teach and prepare the disciples on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he has to be in Jerusalem for Holy Week. He knows what is coming, so he is making the most out of every single moment of this week. He arrives in the city of Jericho, which keep that in mind. Again, we read Jericho not knowing the history. Tara might know it because she was in the Holy Lands, but Jericho is 14 miles east of Jerusalem and is 4,000 feet lower than Jerusalem. So just keep that in mind, okay? 14 miles east and 4,000 feet lower. So we read where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the day before what we call Palm Sunday in Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now again, are tax collectors acceptable in society at this time? No, they're outcasts. They are uh, traitors, according to God's people. They are outcasts. They are only there to make Rome succeed. So we move on. Verse 3, Luke 19, 3. He, he, Zacchaeus, was trying to see who Jesus was, but because he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass by that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your home. Stop there for a minute. Catch the picture. 
Jesus is coming in, getting ready for Holy Week, as we know Holy Week. The apostles are with Jesus, enjoying the teachings of Jesus and seeing the, the continued miracles and everything. But to them, it's just another Passover celebration, right? Here they come into Jericho, and there's a short little guy who climbs up the tree just to see Jesus. As Jesus walks in, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, get down here now. Why? Because we need to stay at your house. So Zacchaeus comes down, and if you can imagine a crowd looking around, going, isn't that the tax collector? And Jesus is supposed to be a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Again, they are frustrated and kind of confused because why would, why would a rabbi, a teacher of the law, the Ten Commandments, of the Old Testament, why would he be with a tax collector? But Jesus goes beyond that, doesn't just say, come down, let me meet you. He says, today we need to stay at your house. Luke 19, verse 6. So Zacchaeus quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And all who saw it began to do what? Mutter, complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, I give half of my possession to the poor, Lord, and if I've exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. What a great tithing message, right? Again, picture the scene. It's so beautiful when you think about it, but so, again, against all odds. Here's Zacchaeus, a sinful tax collector that's been building up life for himself. He's obviously extremely rich, as the Bible says. He's taken advantage of the people. He's collected more than he has. In fact, he's stolen in taking the taxes. But he wants to see Jesus. He's heard about this rabbi. He climbs up a tree. Jesus calls him down to his surprise and calls him by name, even though he's never met him. Zacchaeus comes down, and Jesus says, I need to be at your house today. And out of the middle of nowhere, the heart, the changed heart of a sinful man is seen. Now, instead of asking, well, what about me? What's in it for me? What do I get? How do I profit from this? Instead of that, you see the instant change of a man's heart. And he says, Lord, I'll pay back everything I've ever stolen. In fact, if I've been cheating, I'll pay back four times. Here's a guy that his whole life has been about me and what I get and how I get richer. <clears throat> And out of the blue, without even Jesus even asking him about that issue, he says, Lord, let me give back. In fact, let me give back more than I've taken. Do you see the change? And all that he's done is like the thief on the cross, is simply meet Jesus for the very first time. You see, meeting Jesus, whether it's for that first time in salvation, or meeting Jesus on our 999th day in our daily devotion should change us, shouldn't it? Should impact us immediately and change us. Let's read on. Luke 19, verse 9. Jesus says, today salvation, what? Salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. What a beautiful picture to enter in a Holy Week, right? 
It's all about salvation. And if you notice the context of this, we start with Holy Week. Jesus brings salvation to Zacchaeus and changes his heart immediately. And we go to the cross a week later on Golgotha, and Jesus saves a dying man hanging on a cross. You see, the whole reason that Jesus came, not only during this time period, but even now for us to restore us, is to bring salvation to a sinful people, to change our lives, not only for today, but forever. Jesus' mindset is on salvation because that's what he came for, isn't it? That's how he begins the week. So point one, if you're taking notes, the Friday before Good Friday in Jericho, Zacchaeus became a Jesus follower and was changed immediately. And his heart had found salvation. Following lunch with Zacchaeus, Jesus and his disciples hiked the grueling ascent from Jericho to a small village two miles outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. So Jerusalem here, Bethany two miles out, Jericho 12 miles from Bethany. Because Bethany was the home of some good friends of Jesus, you remember them, of the, the three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? And what had Jesus done with Lazarus? Raised him from the dead. Another miracle. So Jesus and the apostles make the 12-mile hike up 4,000 feet to Bethany before sundown on Friday. Now, do you know why he has to do that before sundown on Friday? Because Sabbath, for the Jewish people, began at sundown, and after that, no one, by Jewish law, is allowed to walk more than two-thirds of a mile on a Sabbath. So they had to hoof it, that 12 miles, up to Bethany, up 4,000 feet in incline, to arrive very tired at Lazarus' house. Now, two weeks ago, Christy and I went on vacation, and I can relate with this because... Monday, Tuesday, we hiked maybe three, four miles. Wednesday, we figured we hiked a little over six miles. Thursday, we hiked 8.3 miles and then barely made it from the car to the whole hotel room because we were wiped out. We were tired. We were up and down. We didn't incline 4,000 feet, but we went up and down over rough terrain. And so I can relate with this, with Jesus arrived in Bethany and just being wiped out because he's gone 12, 12 miles 4,000 feet incline. Now, I don't know when the last time any of us walked 12 miles up, but how do you feel that night and the day after? You either sleep too good because you're wiped out, or you don't sleep at all because your muscles are in pain and there was no Advil at this time, right? So that's where Jesus is. The reality of the story, he's hiking on that Friday 12 miles, 4,000 feet up to get to Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. We pick up now in John 12, and we'll read through here for a little while. Uh, John 12 verse 1 says six days before the Passover Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was the one that Jesus had raised from the dead now Jesus gets there again Sabbath starts when at sundown right they can't hike or walk more than two-thirds of a mile but the Sabbath begins what they can do and what's inferred is that Jesus hikes it to a local synagogue to attend worship services. Again, where the Bible says, do not be like some who forsake the fellowship of believers, that we need to be in fellowship. Even Jesus in this week, before all that he was about to go through, 
once he got to Bethany with his friends, made it a point to say, hey, church is important. We need to go to church. We need to go to church. I relate with this for one simple reason. That's how I came to salvation. When I was younger, parents were divorced, we traveled around. My family, immediate family, was not a church family. My grandparents were, and my aunt was. But anytime we would go to visit my aunt in Canyon City, where we finally settled down, our aunt had one rule. If it's Sunday, you're getting up and going to church, right? Now, of course, as a older elementary age kid, that doesn't sound so fun because it's a bunch of old fuddy-duddies and you got to sit through an hour, two hour service, right? And some guy's yelling at you. One Sunday, that's also where I found salvation. Because my aunt said, if you're with me, we are going to church. Fellowship is tremendously important. And Jesus says, we're in Bethany. We've just hoofed it 12 miles, but we're going to church. John goes on in John 12 and he says, that night, so they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha was serving him and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Then Mary took a, a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You ever walk through the grocery store not so much with a guy, but with a woman that is like dumped on six gallons of perfume. And you can feel the trail of perfume like for three aisles after you walk by. Imagine this strong, potent perfume that Mary has that she takes it out and she anoints Jesus' feet with it and she wipes it off with her hair. Can you imagine what that house smelled like? I mean, it just radiated of this perfume. Now, for Mary, at this time in history, 50% of the women were named Mary. Do you know why? Because they celebrated Miriam. Remember who Miriam was? Moses' sister. She was a female hero. So at this time, 50% of the women were named Mary after Miriam. Okay? We're not completely sure theologically who this Mary is. Some claim it was Mary, the sister of Martha, Martha and Lazarus, but... I don't quite buy into that because I go along with the majority of theologians that say this was probably, do you know who? Mary Magdalene. Now who was Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was the very woman that had been caught in the midst of adultery and was shamed by the religious leaders and Jesus instead of shaming her, forgives her. He pays her debt on the spot and looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she goes, they've all left. As we know the story from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away because Jesus says, he who has not sinned, cast the first stone. And one by one, they walk away. And Jesus says, Mary, where are your accusers? And she goes, they're gone. He goes, I also do not accuse you. Go your way and sin no more. Mary comes to salvation. And in her gratitude, she does for Jesus the greatest thing that she can do within her means. Now, in the world, there are rich Christians and poor Christians, right? The call isn't that we have to do and match what everybody else does. The call is 
to live a sacrificial, sacrificial life unto Christ based on what God has given us within our means. Mary takes this alabaster jar of perfume, which the Bible tells us was worth an entire year's wages. It was probably an heirloom that was passed on to her, and it was the most precious and expensive thing that she has. I mean, she could have sold this and made bank for a year, right? So I don't know how much you guys have made in the last year, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, 80,000, 300,000. But what would compel you, whatever your income was that year, to take a possession that was worth your entire year's income and give to Jesus? Freely, happily, rejoicing with your tears dropping on his feet and then wiping it off with your hair. The interesting thing is Jesus doesn't do anything like say, Oh, Mary, stop. I'm not worry, worthy. In fact, Jesus infers something exactly opposite, that he is what? Worthy. Because he allows her to do that, to make that sacrifice. In essence, he is saying, I am worthy of this great blessing, of this sacrificial gift from this woman who has given me all that she has, much like the woman in the New Testament who gives basically a penny. And Jesus says that woman has given more than anybody else because she gave of all that she had. The call to us in our life, especially for those of us that have been Christians for a while, is to remember that a costly gift, a sacrificial gift to Jesus, is often the right gift. Because when we backtrack and we think about it, Jesus gave everything, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, to pay for our debt. And the simpleness that God tells us that every good thing we have comes from God, to give God that sacrificial gift back really should not be a big issue. Why? Because God gave it all to us anyway, right? The imagery of tithing, where God asks for a tenth, God gives us ten apples and says, Oh, hey, by the way, I'm hungry. Can I have an apple back? Well, that doesn't seem like much, right? Amazingly, when it comes to our finances, we're like, Whoa, you want a tenth? And then you want a sacrificial gift? Wow, what kind of God are you that you want so much? It's already all given by God in the first place, right? It's given by God. And that's a way like obedience, that we express our love for Jesus. They're basically saying, Jesus, there is nothing that I have, nothing that I have that is more important than, I'm, than my relationship to you. Nothing that I have. Much like the story of Abraham and sacrificing his son Isaac. Right? We read the story last week. The knife is coming down to sacrifice the son of God. At that very moment, the angel stops him, and God says, now I know that your faith is so great that nothing is greater to you than me. Sometimes, kids, a sacrificial gift for Jesus is the right gift. But it's an odd thing in our culture filled with sin that generosity often attracts this thing called criticism, right? The Bible goes on to say this in verse 4 of John 12. It says, Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to do what? Was about to betray Jesus, said, 
Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 goes on to say something very important. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. So here's Judas, who had his own agenda, who we know will sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, who is frustrated because Jesus was not going with his plan. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute as we enter Holy Week. How many times have you seen someone in church that claims to be a Christian that gets all their feathers ruffled and says, well, I'm taking my tithe and leaving me. I'm leaving this church. You guys can't do anything about me because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. What a stupid thing. What a prideful, arrogant, stupid thing as a Christian. Because we have died to ourselves and the life we now live, we live to Christ, right? We don't live for getting our way. So when we come in those issues where we're in church and we're frustrated because things didn't go our way or we were told something we didn't like or confronted or whatever it may be, kids, don't get your feathers in a ruffle. Remember who you are and more importantly, remember who you belong to. That's Jesus Christ. That God is the one who ordains what goes on the church. Here is Judas who's ruffled because things were not going his way by his agenda. And now a woman dumps a bottle of perfume on Jesus that cost a year's wages. So he reacts in this knee-jerk reaction like, why didn't we sell this? This is stupid. We could have given it to the poor. Do you think Judas really wanted to give it to the poor? No. Again, we know he had an agenda. We know he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We know he betrays Jesus with a kiss and backstabs him. But we also know this. If you read on down in John, in verse 6, it says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So what did Judas really want when he saw this perfume being poured out to anoint Jesus? He's like, we could have sold that, and I could have had some of it for me. That's the real motive. That's the calling out a splinter when there's a log in your own eye mentality, right? Judas wants it for his own personal gain. He cares nothing about Jesus being anointed and being blessed. That doesn't even come into his mindset. He's angry because he's like, I could have had some of that for me. Again, do you see the contrast of spiritual warfare going on? Mary, who's been forgiven a great debt, is giving out of everything she has. Judas, who doesn't like what Jesus is doing now because he doesn't get any gain out of it, is now angry and bitter and sinful and begins to scheme even more. Verse 7 of John 12, Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Well, that should have raised some eyebrows right there, shouldn't it? For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So on Saturday... Jesus celebrates the Sabbath, he eats dinner with friends, and he is anointed with Mary for what? His coming death. So Saturday before Palm Sunday, Jesus is in Bethany, Mary anoints his feet. What happens next? Well, Sabbath ends at sundown, and John says in John 12, 19, 11, then a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany. Now remember, Bethany is just two miles away. I even think I could hook two miles someplace if I needed to to see someone. 
and it says they came not be, they came not only because Jesus but also to see Lazarus who was the one raised from the dead so here they are this is like the carnivals come to town right suddenly this great rabbi Jesus is in town in Bethany two miles away but also if you go for the same fair guess who else is there the guy that was raised from the dead Man, if we go two miles to Bethany, we get to see both these cool things all at once. You see where their mindset is not on the Messiah, but it's on what is going to be entertaining to them. Verse 10 of John 12 says, But the chief priests had decided to do something different as they traveled with Lazarus. What did they decide to do? to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So now we see the spiritual battle begin to rear its ugly head. The people are saying, let's go to Bethany, it's two miles away, let's see this Jesus before the Passover, and hey, the guy that was raised by the dead is there. This is gonna be cool, I've never seen a dead guy rise from the dead, right? But the Pharisees, the, quote, religious leaders that are supposed to be leading us to God and doing good, are once again in the midst of scheming something wicked, evil, and unlawful. They're scheming to kill a guy. The religious leaders. Do you see how messed up that is? They're scheming to kill a guy because he was raised from the dead, and now their little entourage is leaving and flocking to see Jesus. Jealousy and envy and short-sightedness are horrible things in a Christian life, aren't they? When we don't see through the eyes of Jesus, we do things like Judas did. We do things like the religious leaders did where if we can't have our way, well, we'll just destroy it or do something to ruin it forever for everybody. That is so ungodly and so unbiblical as we apply these lessons to us. So we read on, John chapter 12. Verse John 12, verse 13. Then on the next day, the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. So some have gone to Bethany to see Jesus. Now it's the Passover celebration. Jesus is coming in, and he's coming in on what? The colt of a donkey, right? And they're laying down palm branches and, cry, and crying and shouting out, Hosanna. Now, where did this all come from? Well, if you think back, they went to Bethany to see who? The great rabbi Jesus and who? Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Now they're coming into the Passover, and it was tradition when people came into Jerusalem that there were many so-called messiahs that would come into Jerusalem and say, Hey, I'm your guy this year. I'm your, your great leader that's going to save you. Jesus isn't pronouncing that, but in the mindset of God's people, when they had gone to Bethany, they saw Jesus, they heard his words, they saw the man he had raised from the dead, the mindset is this, hey, anyone who can raise a guy from the dead can certainly, certainly defeat Rome, right? I mean, if he's got the power over life and death to raise a guy from, from death, don't you think he can save us from political turmoil by overcoming the Romans? Doesn't that make sense in your mind? If you could raise a guy from the dead and you have that power, well, overcoming the Romans should be easy. So they, in tradition, start laying down palm branches, 
which were the sign of a victory of a great warrior. So what they're doing in laying down the palm branches is they're already celebrating before the events have happened saying, hey, this is the guy that raised a guy from the dead. He has the power. He can overcome Rome. We can start celebrating early. So lay down the palm branches because that's what you did when a great warrior came back from a tremendous victory. So they're celebrating early, right? That's kind of, here's my comment on this. You ever get promised a raise or a bonus or something? What's the temptation? Go buy something because I deserve it. I've worked hard for this and I'll be able to pay it with my bonus or my raise, right? You spend your money before it's actually yours and then you come to the boss and it's like, oh, well, you know what? It's supply chain, it's labor issues, it's other issues. We can't give you that bonus or that raise. It's like, but I've already bought this. <laughs> Sorry, maybe you better return it, right? You ever spend your money before you've earned it? It's a common temptation and it gets us into trouble, right? Especially if things don't come through. Here's all the people of Jerusalem celebrating early because they're like, hey, the guy raised a guy from the dead. He'll overcome Rome, lay down the palm branches. We can party because the victory is about to happen. And oh, how the week changes, doesn't it? Oh, how the week changes. So they're shouting in John 12, verse 13 and 14. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written by Zechariah 500 years earlier, verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He rides in. They're expecting great victory. They start celebrating early, having no clue what the week is about to unfold because they think this is the year, this is the week, we get our nation, our lives back, and Rome is pushed out. So let's start celebrating. Verse 16. Jesus' disciples did not understand all these things at first. And when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done, these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. So we know these villagers are from Bethany. Verse 18, this is why the crowd met him, because they heard what he had done in this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be an awesome praise if the world went after Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, the whole world just suddenly, because of the internet, turned and started saying, I need to come to salvation. We'd be like, whoop, whoop, whoop. That would be cause to celebrate. The Pharisees, again, who should be seeing this, saying, hey, he's leading people to God. Now they're out to do something illegal, which is kill Lazarus, because he's the symbol of, God, of Jesus' power. And now they're frustrated because they're like, look, everybody's going to him. Boo-boo, huh? Right? When people come to salvation, it should be a good thing, especially if the whole world goes. John does a good job of describing what happens next. So we see Palm Sunday, which is we celebrate today. Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. The people lay down the palm branches and began celebrating 
early. John goes on and writes this in John 19, 41 to 45. As Jesus approached, he saw the city and wept for it. He's coming down this road. He sees Jerusalem and he weeps. He cries, saying, if you knew this day, if you knew, if you had a clue, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Quick rabbit trail. Does the Bible call us to be ready for the second return of Christ? Does the Bible call us to be on the alert, looking to know the signs of the times, to, to know the events of history, to know the events leading up that, that represent Jesus is coming back and Jesus is coming back soon? Are we to know that as Christians, to be alert and anticipatory of that, and to be ready? Isn't that our call? Doesn't Jesus say to be ready? And he gives us multiple examples in the New Testament. The most poignant one is the example of the, the ten virgins going to the wedding celebration. They have their little lamps lit because they don't know when it's happening, but they know it's coming. And five show up prepared with full oil in their lamps, ready for whenever it happens, right? And five are like, hey, let's just grab it. We can hit the local 7-Eleven and get some oil when we need it, or they'll share. But when the end times comes, it's not so much time of sharing, is it? Those that are ready are prepared, and there is no legitimate reason they should give others what they have prepared. Now that sounds harsh, but when we know the warning signs and we don't do our due diligence, whose fault is that? It's theirs. It's theirs. So in that story five, are scrambling when they see the wedding party and the groom coming going, oh my gosh, our lamps are almost out of oil. We're not prepared, we're not ready. Hey, you guys who did the good stuff, give us some of your stuff. Isn't that like the world? Well, I didn't do my job, I, didn't, I wasn't responsible, I wasn't accountable, I didn't work for a living. But you take care of me, give me some of yours. Isn't that what our world does? And you know what happens? Five were let in. And when the other five went scrambling to find some oil, they were shut out. And when they showed up going, hey, we're here, we're back, we got our stuff, can we come in? And they're like, no. Just like Noah and the ark, when the people didn't respond accordingly, they were shut out and shut out for good. In this story, in Luke 19, when God is telling the city, that you should have known the day of God's visitation. The signs were all there. Isaiah, Zechariah, the other prophets foretold it. If you look around, you see everything's coming. But he says, because you weren't prepared and you weren't looking for God, because of that, now your eyes have been blinded and destruction will come upon you. Just like Noah and the ark and the people that are shut out, just like the five virgins who weren't prepared and were shut out. It's the same story here. God has given us the blessing of warning us and foretelling us again and again and again. Why? 
so that we would be on the alert to know the signs and to be found ready for Jesus' return. I get this warped picture in my mind that Jesus comes back in a twinkling of an eye and there's some Christians under going, oh, sorry, Jesus, just one moment. I got to do one thing real quick before I join you for all eternity in heaven and be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Can you just give me 10 minutes? I just kind of want to run to the bank and pull out some cash. Or I got to go to the grocery store and buy a ham to celebrate. How crazy does that sound? But that's the image. That's the image. Wait, just let me do this. Or I just wasn't ready. Let me go get it and then I'll come back. And Jesus says, no, I warned you. And the crime that Jesus has against, uh, God has against Jerusalem is this. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. That's the crime. The message for us in this isn't going into Holy Week. We should know when God visits us and anticipate that because he's told us ready. So, comes in verse 45. Jesus comes on a donkey. Verse 45, Luke 19 says, He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. As he said, it is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus goes to the church again, but here's all these little vendors out there selling stuff and trinkets. And Jesus violently cast them out. Because again, the prophecy was that the people would make God's house a den of thieves. And here it was. And because Jesus had zeal for his father's house, he's like, get out of my house and I will throw you out into the street. This is not a nice scene. But it's all foretold. And you see Jesus going to the temple and just picking up tables and throwing them. That had to create a little discussion, didn't it? So, Palm Sunday, Jesus receives praise and prayers as he rides into Jerusalem. The people start celebrating early. Jesus weeps over the future destruction of the people in the city. He goes to the temple to worship. But winds up cleansing the money changers who were taking advantage of the people rather than helping to get them connected to God. That's Palm Sunday. That's today. What happens next? Well, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are called Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, and Holy Wednesday. Wow, holy cow, right? What did Jesus do Monday through Wednesday as we go through our week? He taught the crowds in the temple and the disciples again back in Bethany. We read Luke 19, verse 47. Every day... He, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking to him for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what he heard. So Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday of this week, as you're having your devotions, take it to heart that Jesus is teaching you through his word, the Bible, just as he was teaching in the temple at that time, and the crowds, the adjective the Bible uses is, the crowds were captivated by his teachings. I want you to hold on to that word captivated because you know what the practical application is for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? When you go to the Word of God and you have your devotional time, your prayer time, your Bible reading, I want you to be captivated by the words of God to you. Just so engrossed and enveloped, just captivated that you hang on every word that comes from the mouth of God to you and to me. We need to be captivated this week, don't we? So Monday through Wednesday, Jesus follows a routine. He sleeps in Bethany. He walks two miles in the morning. During the day, he teaches in a temple. He heals the sick. 
He spars a bit with the religious leaders who keep trying to lock him in on difficult questions and, and theology. And at night, Jesus goes back every night to Bethany to stay at his friend's house, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and rest. That's the front half of the week. Then we come to Thursday, which the church calls Monday Thursday. You've heard of that? And Jesus changes his pattern on Thursday. Here he confronts the Pharisees because it's been escalating for three days now as he's teaching in the temple and the crowds are captivated by him and the Pharisees are jealous and angered. They're looking to seize him and we know they're also looking to do what with both he and Lazarus? Kill them. So Luke goes on and tells us this. Luke 22, verse 1. The festival of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid they were losing control and power, right? They were losing their influence. So here we are on Thursday, Jesus is there, and he does this kind of cloak and dagger thing. It's the Passover. It's when all the people in the city celebrated the Passover. Does Jesus announce where he's having the Passover? Nope. We read on in Luke, or in John verse 13, if you want to turn there, and Luke 22, that Jesus kind of does this thing where he knows they're out to kill him. He knows he wants to celebrate the Passover because he's going to do something in this last Passover that is significant, and it has to happen. And therefore, if he tells everybody in the town where he's doing the Passover, they're all going to get there, and the Pharisees may come and kill him. So he kind of keeps it quiet. In fact, he doesn't even tell the disciples, does he? The reason he does this in this Monday Thursday, it's also called Commandment Thursday, is this. John 12, 34. Because Jesus wants to give the disciples, the apostles, a new commandment. A new covenant. Is that what we celebrate in modern Christianity? We celebrate it in a form of communion that Jesus gave them a new command that we love one another, that we love God. He gives us a new covenant. And John 13, 34 says this, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The mark of the Christian when truly in a right relationship with God, is love. So when people say, well, they did this, I just can't forgive. Well, you remember what Jesus forgave you. And Jesus loved you in spite of your sin and yourself. We are to love as Jesus. And that means forgiving 100% completely, fully, and not bringing it back to the surface, but forgiving and let it go and loving others. Luke 22, moving on. Thursday. Luke 22, 7 to 15. Then the day of the unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparation for us to eat the Passover meal. Okay. What would it be if Jesus just came up to you and said, hey, Laura, Tara, Christy, go and make the Passover meal so Ken and I can come join you. What's your first question? Where, right? Well, verse 9, what do the disciples ask? What does John and Peter say? Where do you want us to prepare it for you? Is this a big secret? Verse 10, listen, Jesus said to them, when you enter the city, in other words, again, he says, listen, pay attention to this. This instruction is important. 
When you enter the city, a man carrying a jug will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks of you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs and make the preparations there. Stop there. How ridiculous does this sound? Okay, ladies, go and find a place to prepare the Passover. Okay, where? Well, when you meander down into Sandy, Utah, you're going to see a guy at the 7-Eleven, and he's going to be pumping gas, and he's going to come up and just wave his hand and say hi, and you walk up to him and say, hey, we need to use our house because the teacher wants your house. He wants to take over your large room in your house, and uh, we're supposed to be there and make all the preparations for Passover. How's that sound? You feel confident? No! You're like, what is he doing? Keep that thought in mind. Because just a few days earlier, Jesus gave him a hint that this wasn't such an ostentatious thing. Because what did he do when Zacchaeus is in the tree? Zacchaeus, calm down. We're staying at your house tonight. The disciple or the apostles saw it. This should not be a big motivating factor. But they're left in the dark on purpose, right? When God asks you to do something that doesn't make sense to you, and he showed you previously in your life of faith that he's always been faithful, even in weird things where you don't have the control of the answer, shouldn't you obey him? Yeah, and that's what the disciples do. So verse 13, John or Luke 22. So they went and found it just as Jesus had told them. Wow, what a coincidence. And they prepared the Passover, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him, and then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. And he introduces the new covenant, the new commandment. So, Monday, Thursday. Jesus lays low in Bethany, celebrates the Last Supper with his apostles, issues a new command. He, we look at later, he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's arrested by the temple guard. Then came Friday. Friday was our best day as Christians and God's worst, because Good Friday, Jesus endured six trials that we looked on on the first sermon of the series. He was beaten and crucified while the sin of the world was laid upon him. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, and he takes with him a thief on the cross to paradise. Again, remember those six trials? They took place illegally between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m., three at the hands of the Roman government and three at the hands of the Jewish government. And all six trials were illegal and mocked up charges and he had no representation. They held Jesus illegally. They had false witnesses which just didn't collaborate with each other. And he didn't do anything wrong, but they caused him to be beaten and lashed 39 times and mocked and a crown of thorns was placed on his head and he was crucified in Golgotha between two thieves and buried in a rich man's tomb. That's Holy Saturday. Jesus descends into Hades and he sets the captives free. Jesus spends Saturday after Friday, as we call Holy Saturday, in the grave. And the book of Ephesians tells us that on that day, Jesus descended into hell, into Hades, and he sets the captives free, taking all those to heaven who had been waiting there for him in a place called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, because they could not get to heaven yet because the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb had not yet come 
to pay for all the sins. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he took the sin of the world upon him, and now he goes to get those captives in that whole spiritual holding place to bring them to heaven. Then we get to Resurrection Sunday, which we celebrate next week. Jesus rises from the dead. He greets Mary Magdalene. And he walks seven miles with friends, as we'll talk about next Sunday. He walks through, through a wall, and he eats some fish. Pretty darn good day, right? But we'll talk about that next Sunday. This was a week like no other, wasn't it? It was such a crazy week when you break it down. Again, as you go through this week, I encourage you to think about what Jesus did every day of this week as you are in the Word of God and having your devotion, your time with Him, that you are captivated at the words of God as He speaks to you and that you can relate with Jesus that this is what you are doing and I can walk through this week with you knowing the new covenant side of it and praise you and thank you. We close with this. The Apostles' Creed, as it summarizes what happened this Holy Week and what we believe as Christians. The Apostles' Creed states this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Lord Jesus, we are just amazed and astounded at your the week that you endured, that you went through, how you were so succinct in making things happen so you could be in the right place at the right time. But throughout the entire week, with all those forces that were against you, seeking to kill you and destroy you, and seeking to overtake you because of the hardness of hearts and the sin of people's lives, that you found a way to continue to teach, to captivate the people with the words of God. You found a way to save and to heal and to bring salvation in an instant. Lord, I pray that as we come to you, our spiritual lives would be renewed, that we would be captivated in our relationship with you. And that if we are hearing this and we don't know you in salvation, we would surrender and cry out, God, forgive me, a sinner. Jesus, let your grace be upon me. And Lord Jesus, bring your salvation to my life, that I might be changed and live with you forever in all eternity in heaven. May all of us celebrate this week as we lead up next week to Resurrection Sunday in the power, in the majesty, in the miracle of salvation in Jesus' name.